Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday night. Okay. Uh, I spent it today uh, at the Holocaust Museum taking a bunch of boys there. And now let me get down to a talk which is no gay to this week's Parsha, but really has to do with the Shavuos. This is a request by a good friend, uh, Abe Gluck and, 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 and Gluck Plumbing in, in Lakewood. That's a very thoughtful question. And it happens to fit in very well with this week's Parsha because in Chukosai Telech is Amelim Batorah. This is the famous thing about Amelim Batorah. And the question has to do, if I understand correctly, <coughs> with what is the role of a male's Batora, or better yet, Lima Batora, all that put, stuff put together <coughs> in Jewish history, speaking as a historian, as a historic, as a historian kind of um, evaluation. Uh, so I can give you my opinion, that's all, like I say, that's all I could ever do. Uh, it's a very interesting question, and he referenced me that from time to time I speak about the portable fatherland, which is that the Jewish people a very unusual history, and we'll discuss right now, as speaking historically, what was the role of Lima Torah in Jewish culture and survival of the Jewish people. This is just some from me speech time at the Beltran, but this has to do with what I think is a historical phenomenon. I'll tell you what I mean. We've been around for a long time, about 3,500 years as a people. You know, more or less, the Myron has seen it goes back to, I don't know, 1,200 B.C., 1,300 B.C., something like that. <laughs> But the Jewish people had their own country for Bayesh Misham. Um, and then things got more complicated because they went into exile and then they came back, some of them came back after 70 years. You know what I'm talking about, beginning of Bayesh Shani. Uh, many people stayed away. In fact, the Rove. Uh, this is a W. Dua. <coughs> the Rove. Uh, 42,000, someone came back with that, with Thomas Rubovo and Ezra brought a few more back and so forth and so on. And from then on, the reality has been that some Jews live in Israel and many Jews live in the diaspora. And around that time, you begin to have, with W. C. Hoffman, start talking about it, which I intend to talk about next time, hopefully, which is the formation of the Torah Shabbat in the literary form. Uh, and there are all kinds of reasons for that. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons for that. One reason of many is a response to historical circumstances, the Hainu, now the Jews are scattered all over the place, and they doggone well better have something common that unites them, or else they'll, 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 they'll all drift off apart from each other. The Jewish people not survive. Jewish people not survive. Now, during the Bayashani period, you had two things, therefore. You had a temple, with everything that goes along with that, and we know from many sources, very people were attached, even Chutzlars, to the base of Megdosh, and so forth. Um, but on the other hand, you started to have something which was I would call it a Migdash Ma'at, but I don't mean a synagogue. You, you did have that. You have the synagogue starting, that's a Greek word, right? Synagogue. In the Bayashini period. but And people have davening and prayers there. But what is it that keeps them in sync with the other Jews elsewhere? And the answer is the practice of Judaism, which has to be based on a certain reading of the Torah. 
That's exactly what Hoffman and these other guys are into, which is how do you get from the Torah Shabbat what you and I call the Torah Shabbat How is it exegesis? How is it arrived at? And all this took place over the course of the hundreds of years, four, five, six hundred, whatever, however you calculate, of the Bayashani, and because there are different calculations. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, you see definitely, Zelumazet, as the Jewish people become more scattered, slowly but surely, culminating in the Chor Bayashani, the Torah becomes more firmed up in terms of form. Matter of fact, <coughs> the Torah Shavik Sav forms during the beginning of Bayashani period and during the Bayashani period with what's called Shavik They made this Torah Shavik Sav. I refer, of course, to the Nevi'im Exuvim. And even the Torah they put in the form that we have it today, what exactly that means is a big machlok is about to conserve from things like that. Well, let's give the firmest explanation. <clears throat> so they gave the Torah away, but they counted up the letters, as you know, and they figured what's the midpoint, and they concentrated on exegesis, on how to do resh, get the halachas out of the psukim and things like that. Okay? So that means that if you're a Jew living who knows where, in time by Shani, in the Greco-Roman period, you all have the same Tanakh. Or I would say, if you want to be very historically accurate, you have the same Chumash and most of the Nach. Okay? Most of the Nach. I won't go into details. Most of the Nach. Uh, but then comes the Chorim Bayashani. <clears throat> and that, my friends, has been with us for 2,000 years now. Now it's 2022. So in the year 2070, will be 2,000 years. It's almost 2,000 years. <clears throat> now, at that point, Jewish history gets very interesting. In the sense that, <clears throat> as I've said many times endlessly in my college lectures and things like that, the Jewish people present a fairly unique kind of phenomenon in which you have a group which does not have a state, which does not have a church, and does not have geographical contiguity, and is scattered in all kinds of different places subject to very different kinds of cultural situations. So to, to put it in simple English, for the simple, some were in Christian countries, some were in Muslim countries. And the, the culture and civilization are very different. Okay? Uh, first half of the Middle Ages, Rome and the Jews are in the Muslim area. Then after the Middle Ages, Rome Jews end up being in Europe under the Christians. That's the short thing of it. <clears throat> now, at that point, the Jews were helpless. They had lived the mercy of others by, as I always say, um, on sufferance and of service to the Muslims and to the Christians. The different rulers, if they want so, it's like you know, They can do whatever they want to the Jews, and they did. So, if you're Jewish, that's just the reality you have to live with. That is the reality you have to live with. Now, that means that in practical terms, Jewish communities dotted the entire globe of North Africa, the Middle East, and Europe, certainly Southern and Central Europe, later Eastern Europe as well. And they don't formally have anything to do with each other <clears throat> because the Jews never ever even attempted, like I said in the Zionism thing, never even attempted to get together to organize some kind of central business, central organization. No one ever started, quote-unquote, a Zionist movement where all the killers get together to disgusting. wasn't even on the agenda. Instead, everyone did their own thing, like they say in Yiddish, everyone made Shabbos for themselves. So in Spain, in France, in Germany in Italy, in the Middle East, in the Balkans, and so forth and so on, all around the world, the were Jews, each one did his own thing. How did they stay in touch with each other 
certainly mentally and emotionally, to consider themselves part of one people, which we did do. So that a Jew living, for example, in the time of Rashi in France, has no real attachment to the Frenchman who lives next door to him, is in physical proximity, and he has every attachment to a Yemeni Jew that he never will see. Or a Jew in Persia or elsewhere. Of course, there are differences in Menachem and all that stuff, but what is it that makes them to, is it simply a, a, a racial consciousness that we all come back to Avram Yitzhak There's part of that. But I'm telling you, that would never have been enough for the Jewish people to maintain their national identity so the Jews everywhere feel themselves to be one part of one whole, and they feel a very intense connection with other Jews elsewhere and their davening and their emotions and all that sort of thing in a way that they have a complete absence of of the uh, Gentiles who are around them, even though in physical proximity they are physically their neighbors. The Goyim are physically their neighbors because they live next door, we're in the same town. So that's an interesting feat, which I don't think happened to anybody else, any other group. Now, in order for this to happen, you had to have certain commonalities, which I always talk about. Fundamentalism, nomianism, cultural insularity, autonomous course of communities. That's how I usually put it in my academic lectures. But an essential part of all that <clears throat> is the following. The Jews had to have, they had to, if they all want to stay on the same page and consider themselves a part of the same people, they had to have a common culture. Now, what do I mean when I say a common culture? Something that everybody's into equally. I'm going to go farther than that. They had to have a common high culture. Countries and civilizations have high cultures, middle and low. The low is for the scum, the bars, the brothels, the, the, the low-class people, uh, uh, jokes, uh, obscenities, uh, stupid little poems, rhymes, junk like that. The middle, well, the middle is affected by the high. So what was the high culture among the Jews? As a people. As a people. Now, listen closely, I'm going to say. Wherever the Jews lived, they were affected by the garden. And so in the Arab countries, the Jews ended up speaking a version of Arabic. And the German countries, they ended up speaking a version of German called Yiddish. And similar in Italy and Spain and other places like that. So they're definitely affected by local cultures. And everywhere you went, <clears throat> different Jewish communities picked up certain shtick and superstitions superstitions from the local cultures. That's how it goes. It's very hard to disentangle what's Jewish and what's not Jewish if you go back to medieval and late, late, later than medieval folklore among Jews, and many people have studied this stuff. Okay, And you'll find that the Jews in Germany have a lot of stuff left from the German folklore and modified the Italians from the Italian, the Arabs from the Arabs, the Moroccans from the local Moroccan Goyim, the Yemenites from the Yemenites. That's how, Persian from the Persian. That's how it goes. If you think that they had an impenetrable wall around them, it's not true. Not true. Any more than if I ask you, the listener at this moment to the podcast, are you telling me you're not affected by the American culture or the European culture if you live over there or the Australian or the Israeli secular? I mean, that, that is how it goes. It's a messias, okay? I mean, the very fact you're listening to a podcast is itself a sign, and certainly technologically and otherwise, that you're being impacted by the outside culture. Now, right, now listen. In order, had the Jews only had in common um, ritual practices, 
This one keeps Shabbos on the seventh day on Saturday, and this one does. This one you know, eats matzah on Passover and so forth. This one likes a candle Hanukkah, and that one does. So that would be very interesting, but it would ultimately lead to a certain uh, rigidity and stagnation, which you and I witnessed, I'm using this uh, colloquially, in the last 100, 150 years, when we saw in America and elsewhere, those who were simply traditionalistic and continued the minhagim and customs and religious traditions of their parents without knowing why they were doing it, eventually their kids went off the derach. Uh, here in Baltimore, for example, and other places, they used that long ago, 100 years ago, 120, 130 years ago, all these German Jews. I'm talking about the religious ones. They didn't know anything. They weren't learning, but they kept up whatever practices and religious stuff they saw back in the old country where they got from their parents or their grandparents. But I happen to know they came by the time of the grandchildren and great-grandchildren or great-grandchildren, it dropped. Because simply to do something because somebody else did it, don't go. <laughs> you get it? It sounds nice, <clears throat> but it doesn't go. You can't simply say, this is how we did it here, and this is how we did it I've known people like that all my life. But I also know, you know, in Baltimore, in other places in America, in England and around the world, that those families, it lasted for a while, and then it didn't last. Lazy for a while and then it didn't last. Because it comes different generational trends and cultural trends and, you know, the, the, the next generation just is turned off or at least is not turned on by simply repeating the practices that the others did, even though for a couple of generations that worked very beautifully. Okay? They did. And so what I'm saying is, in the absence of a high culture, of a vibrant high culture, no civilization can survive. <clears throat> now, we've seen it many times, okay? And if they survived, they survived in small, truncated, and decadent form. Decadent form. I ran into the Karaites a couple years ago. Oh, whatever, I, don't, I won't go into details. We do have around the world certain religious groups and cultures which are reduced down to simply ceremonials, and they keep it up, some of them, because the parents kept it up and all the rest of it. But usually they're in a decadent phase. They're... they're that's how it goes. Now, the Jewish religion and the Jewish people never went through a period of decadence like that. And what's the reason? Because, my friends, they always had a high uh, intellectual culture, very insular, surrounded around what I'll call the Talmud in general, the Torah Shabbat Peh. Okay? Uh, in other words, because of that male's Torah factor. Wherever you went, the Jews, wherever they hunkered down, Included some people, I won't say where everyone, because that's not true, but in many places where they went, there developed centers of scholarship in which there was a common um, a culture. This culture was formed by the Gemara. Now, maybe under other circumstances, <clears throat> it would have been formed by something else. You know, who cares? For our purposes. <clears throat> but Lamaisa, you and I know that they produced the Bavli, the Ushami, and all this other stuff. And for historical purposes that we're discussing today, <clears throat> the book that took off was the Talmud Babli. Whether you like it or not, the Yushalmi did not take off. Whether you like it or not, the Tosefta, you can't say really took off. But the Talmud Babli took off. And by that I mean it was intensely cultivated, sometimes by small groups, sometimes by larger groups, <clears throat> in different centers around the world. <clears throat> when I say around the world, I mean in Europe and, and in the Muslim world. And most importantly, this 
common pursuit of intense engagement with the texts of the Talmud and the attempts to analyze them and comment upon <clears throat> and challenge the comments of others and update them and redo them and all the rest of it <clears throat> and fight about them, those, that continued out of Yom Hazen. And that is the sign of a vibrant culture when I see a vort and you challenge me with a new idea, with a different insight, and I have to come back and hit you back. Now, it doesn't even matter for my purposes today. It doesn't even matter whether I'm right or you're wrong, whether what I say is more mistaber or what you say is more mistaber. The sign of the absence of decadence is the fact that there's intention engagement uh, culturally, intellectually, and emotionally with the same texts. So that really became more than anything else the high culture and the portable fatherland of the Jewish intellectuals. And so century after century, this guy may live in France, that guy may live in Italy, the third one guy may live in Egypt, but they're all eventually, this is what happened in the course of the Jewish history in the Middle Ages. They all end up learning Rashi, even though Rashi started in France, but it turns everywhere. They all end up learning the Rambam, even though the Rambam you know, wrote it in Egypt and that sort of thing. They all end up wherever they are, eventually engaged with Tosfus. Now, by the way, there's a history to this. There's some Roshonim nobody ever heard of until Blau, you know, found them somewhere a number of years ago and said, you know, Chidushe Kreskis on, I don't know, Chidushin. Listen, more power to him. By that, I mean, I'm not taking away from Kreskis or anybody else. Nobody ever heard of these guys until recently, and they differ, They didn't play a role historically in the Limanat Torah around the world. But the biggies did. And it's just interesting, you understand? Maybe I'll do a separate podcast. Which books took off and why? And which books did not take off? And it's not necessarily true, it's a matter of taste, that this book, which is popular in the Yeshiva world today, is something that I consider good or vice versa. You know what I mean? Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but the fact that I have an opinion on it, and the fact you I disagree over it, and so on and so forth, shows you it's a live and vibrant culture. You see? <coughs> And we know, you know, because most of you listening, I'm sure, to the podcast had some experience with the She World or something like that, or the seminaries, you know, and you see people are heavily engaged with this stuff, and it matters to them. You see? Now, if I'm a French Jew, and I'm going, I'm just making this up, in the 1400s, on a business trip to North Africa, and eventually my stuff might lead me to Israel or to Persia, and such things happen. If I'm a Talmud Chacham, in addition to being a businessman, why not? One's not a contradiction to the other. I might take, in the 1400s, a couple of farm along with me, and when I reach Egypt, I'm going to take care of my business uh, stuff, you know, my business contacts and all that, okay? But I'm also, chances are, <clears throat> going to end up in the shul. i got to go somewhere for Shabbos, and if I know how to learn a little bit, I may end up talking to a Talmud Chacham, who's Egyptian, in the 1400s, before the Sephardim, you know, who's Egyptian, and we might, and they might be saying, are you learning, uh, where's the Dafiyoma? Are you learning Yavamas? I'm learning Yavamas. I learned a couple years ago. You know, when I learned Yavamas, we talk out of Kasha on this. And this guy will answer back. And we'll have a fight. And we're not. Or we'll get along. We'll have a different insight. And we've already established a contact of an intimate nature. I say, you know, I was in Egypt. I'm not Egyptian. I'm French. I stayed in Egypt. And I had a gavaldic time, you know, with another guy that I don't even know. But we, we had a fantastic afternoon. Or a week. Conversely, I may say like this. 
you know, I found a bunch of idiots over there. They learned to go more like this. They're a bunch of dummies. And so, okay, but it's a relationship. You know what I'm saying? It's a masa It's a back and forth. It's, and I'm talking, therefore, about the Amei Limba Torah. Talking about those who were in it. Players. When they see Bukhukosa Telecha, they're talking about those are players. The players are the ones who maintain the vibrancy of a common Jewish culture, which became international, uh, so that the important books spread around the Jewish world. They spread around the Jewish world, obviously, because people conveyed them. And even though one wrote it over here and another one wrote it over there, but the ones I'm talking about spread. And wherever you went, people had the marshal. Uh, that's, that's a fact. Marshall was written in the 17th century. By the 18th century, everyone has the Marshall. That's how it goes. Now, I'm not saying that they necessarily have the Sheriff Yosef, you know, but they have the Marshall. You understand? Or, or the Yamshul Shlomo. They just did. Yeah, that's what happened. Same way in our time. In our time I'll give you the opposite example. When I was a little kid, and I'm not that old, I never heard of Ben I'm living in Baltimore, Maryland. How the heck would I hear that? By the time 20, 30 years went by, I heard of Ben Ishai. <laughs> I bought a copy myself. Manuka, don't worry. You get you get what I'm saying? Right? I had a Ben Ishai, I have nothing to do with it. He lived in Baghdad. What's it got to do with me? It's got a whole different way of, uh, no, it spread. Now, it's true in the 20th century, things spread easier. That is a fact. No question about it. But I'm simply pointing out, even though someone else is coming from a different cultural uh, tradition, he's got stuff that I'm interested in. He speaks to me. It can speak to me good, it can speak to me bad. It can say things I like, say things I don't like. But I'm engaging, I'm not ignoring it. Okay? This meant that wherever the Jews went, they had what I'm telling you is a high culture. It was called the Intense Cultivation of Rabbinic Literature, or what we call today Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. With the with, with the Wedemar Farsham. <clears throat> because the Jews chose to make a big deal out of it, because they decided long ago, this is important, and this is what makes this Jewish, and because those Jews around the world stayed in touch with each other in the sense of books circulating and things like that, the Jews maintained with a very vibrant culture. That's why these guys did not feel stifled or choked living in a mental ghetto, have no shakas, uh way some of the later Maskilim were, you know, with this sort of thing. The Maskilim who came later on, generally speaking, were not too good in learning. And the ones that were, because some were, they didn't engage it the way I tell you. They, they didn't find it that kind of appeal. But that's atypical. More typically, they did find it appealing, uh, the Jewish scholars, and they still do today. They still do today. So again, now, it's true, I say, you know, everything is intensified with the modern 20 and 21st century, of course. That's what our information revolution is all about. But you had a slower version of that, Centuries before, before, before. And since Jewish culture so combined uh, the emphasis on Lima towards the highest intellectual and religious um, activity and a system socially of rewarding this kind of knowledge, to, to put it in grubber terms, you know, the smartest guy will marry the richest girl, something like that. And then Poland, France, Germany, you know, that's, that's how it was. Now, it's not always that way, believe it or not. I'm simply saying that's one road. <clears throat> the fact that this is, and, and you get big um, social credit, big uh, honors, and things like that, that's something the Jewish people dreamed up themselves to 
uh, how did the guy say it? I think Michael Collins said, we have, to, we have to validate our own institutions. We have to supply our own institutions with the, with the value. And we did it as a people. We did it as a people. And so the guy was always wondering, you know, how come the Jews are satisfied with all the stupidity it's very narrow and it's culturally insular, all the rest of it. Jews never give a darn about what the others think. A major part of this is you simply have no idea how rich our culture is if we choose to engage in it. The great tragedy of the modern times, of course, is that most modern Jews don't even know what I'm talking about. They're completely divorced from it as a result of the trends of modernity, the uh, industrial revolution, and the urbanization, and the historicism, the rise of idealistic philosophy. And all the other things I talk about in my lectures, but it happened, as we know. And today, you know, the world, as I always say, is divided between those who are interested in Dafyomi and those who think Dafyomi must be the name of a Korean chef. They simply don't know what the words mean. In fact, many of them don't even know what the word Gemara means, as, as we know. I'm not saying anything you don't know. And so my point is that the um, idea of maintaining a high level, what we regard as a high level, of Torah scholarship. I'll say it again, what we regard, the academy, the universities, do not regard this as a high level. When Hoffman and the other guys were coming up, this was considered all stupid. Like as a Jew and what the Tibetan monks are doing, just blowing the stuff in the wind. It doesn't mean anything. Fine, that's the way they saw it. That's not the way we saw it. And because, I'm telling you a sociological, historical fact, because we saw it that way, and, and still do, that itself gives it power. You know what I'm saying? No, there's nobody today in the uh, university world today is going to say, all that study of Gamar was stupid. Because they say, I guess, look, I'm looking at a phenomenon. Today in the year 2022, there's a very large and growing part of the Jewish world which is uh, which considers stuff important. So that alone makes it historically important. And to be perfectly honest, as we all know, the non-Orthodox are folding little by little. They're disintegrating through one way or another. The Orthodox are coming on strong. That's a Marxist interpretation. The power, you know, shows you what's important. But it is a fact. You see? It is a fact. So, from a from perspective, you say, Lima Torah brings bracha, blah, blah, blah. From a historical perspective, <clears throat> what we call Lima Torah, by which I mean, Amelis Batorah, the intensification of, the intensive cultivation, cultivation, excuse me, of a high, of what we regard, we regard as a high level of scholarship, we regard it just as important as Shakespeare, you know, as a high level of scholarship. The fact that we always subjectively felt that way and acted that way actually allowed us to survive on our own terms, not on Glam's terms, on our terms. Our terms was we wanted to survive intact until Mashiach time. That's what it boiled down to. You see? Then hopefully we get the country back and all the rest of it. Until then, we have to hold the fort. The only way to hold the fort, which means to survive intact as a group, is if the group has a vibrant culture. So, you know and I know, it is not that what makes a, 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 the from world, it's not the fact that you walk into every show and they're all davening in orthodox fashion, although that is true. And that they all will eat matzah on Pesach and light a candle on, on Hanukkah. That is true. But that's not the thing that gives it the vibrancy. The, the uh, religious practice is a result, you know, you know this, in the modern era, since 1945 and earlier, the religious practice, the common religious practice, what we would call the from world, <clears throat> is a baby of the Limanatora. <clears throat> it's not the father of the Limanatora. You understand? 
people got turned on or maintained their intense um, engagement with Judaism through their Lima Torah, and that led them to practice the rituals and the prayers and all that other stuff that goes into Judaism. And that's why the firm world for a long time was really stupid, and in the 18th, especially especially in the 19th century, simply didn't get it. And because we didn't get it, we lost a ton of people. By the time you get to the middle of the 20th century, they got it. And it started to be that the only thing that counts is yeshivas and, and similar educational institutions. And everything else will come as a result of it. Everything will come as a result of it. So it became a sociological, and it still is. What makes the Orthodox world different than the others is, I mean, it's not even a race. They don't have any yeshivas. Notice they have no education system of anything intense, because that's the nature of the reform and conservative others. That's intrinsic to their nature. So they don't have any kind of educational institutions which engage with this sort of emotional intensity, and therefore they cannot survive. That's the secret. It's, not, it's an open secret. Because we've maintained this kind of culture, the culture of, it's eventually produced, after many mistakes, uh, the idea of using the culture itself as the um, agent of survival. So notice, out of the yeshivas, if I can use that term, came the idea, you know, you have to build, you know, a maximum number of yeshivas. And it sounds like a tautology, but it wasn't a tautology. It was simply taking the fact that, you know, this works sociologically and nothing else works. That's what we learned in the 20th century. Nothing else works. So if you go to Baltimore or elsewhere, <clears throat> it's not that everybody became from. They all went to day schools and yeshivas of one kind or another. And as a result, when they got married, they decided it's only natural. They're going to live from them and go to Orthodox Shul. And no shul will survive. It doesn't have some kind of limitatory component. And, and, and that's nothing but a, a plain statement of fact. So this is what I mean when I say that in the absence of a vibrant high culture, uh, the Jewish people could not have remained fresh. They couldn't have remained, uh, you know, supple and vibrant, able to adapt to new circumstances, um, but retaining w without losing the old. I'll use just the word art school. I don't mean that to be funny. I'm very serious. You, you take the new circumstances, but you don't lose the old. That requires a great deal of skill, and most civilizations have not been able to do that. We've been able to do that because of the co concept of uh, liberatora in, in, in a strong and intellectually intensive fashion. And that's the way it is today. Anyway, those are my thoughts when you think about Shavuos being the beginning of all this. So I, this is how historically I would describe the Limonator as a factor in uh, Jewish survival, but not simply survival, but Jewish, uh, what's the right word, a flourishing. Because I think we have flourished, and I think we are flourishing today. That's not to say that the firm world doesn't have its problems. Who boy, we got our problems. So I'm not, you know, don't don't go to the other extreme like a high school student and say, oh, if everything's not bad, then everything's great. Nobody says everything's great. But the core of it is everything is great. Anyway, with that, that's my two cents. And I want to thank uh, the Bucks for uh, inspiring this, I guess you'd say. And with that, I bid you a good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.